Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 275, recorded March 15th, and I am Brian Aachen. I am Michael Kennedy. And I'm Emily Morehouse. Yay, thanks for coming. Um, I also want to thank, uh, give a shout out to Microsoft for Startup Founders Hub, and we'll learn more about them later in the show. So welcome, Emily. Can If people aren't familiar with who you are, uh, who are you? Yeah, of course. Uh, so I'm Emily. I am the director of engineering and one of the co-founders of Cuddlesoft. So we are a creative product development agency focused on web, mobile, IoT, and the cloud. Um, I'm also a PyCon core developer and the PyCon conference chair for this year. Awesome. That is awesome. Said another way, you're quite busy. <laughs> yeah, I also have a 10-month-old, so, you know, not a lot going on in my life. <laughs> yeah, no, a lot, of, a lot of time to binge watch Netflix. 10 months. Wow. So are, are you uh, pretty busy for um, PyCon already? So interestingly enough, this is kind of the time that goes into autopilot in a way. You know, like most things are already set in motion that need to be set in motion. So um, it's really, we're working on the fun stuff right now, like, you know, speaker and staff gifts and stuff like that. But otherwise, it's it's pretty smooth sailing and just uh, sitting back and watching COVID numbers and hoping that we don't get another spike before April, May. Yeah, fingers crossed. This will be the first PyCon after COVID hit. So hopefully everything goes great. I know people are excited. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brian, do I have the first one? Do, do we have to wait? Do we have to wait for me or can I, I talk about this? Uh, yeah. So I'll wait. <laughs> well, let's, let's await. I'm very excited to talk about this one, actually. This one comes from Frederick Averpil. I believe listens to the show a lot. So hello, Frederick. Nice work on this. I was working on the Python Bytes website of all things, and I wanted to do some stuff with like uploading MP3s and having a bunch of automation happen behind the scenes. And one of the things I did not too long ago is switch over to an async database. I think we talked about moving to Beanie and some of the cool stuff I'm doing to like halfway move to async, but not all the way yet, not till we're quite ready. But as part of that, I'm like, well, all this file stuff, this is kind of slow. Like this is a couple of seconds. Is there a way to sort of set the web server free while we're doing this work, right? And some of that involved calling sub-processes. I thought, well, maybe there's some third-party package like AIO files that I could use that would allow me to asynchronously do sub-processes instead of the sub-process module. So I did a quick Google search and I came across Frederick's article here. And much to my surprise, I don't know if you all are aware of this, but built in async IO has async subprocess management already. That's pretty Isn't cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. Emily, have you played with this any? Yeah. You know, I actually think I've used this exact blog post, which is super funny. Um, I was actually <laughs> awesome. just recently writing a uh, like CLI regression test and PyTest and you basically like test running two different servers and I was like fighting with sub process to get it to work. Um, I don't think they were using a new enough version that I could use async await, but I definitely remember referencing this. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So you can just say async IO, the module dot create sub exec for just running it. Or if you need to sort of follow along and uh, see what's going on, you can use even the shell one that requires shell commands like, um, like a CD or an LS type of thing. And then you could just grab the um, the standard out from set that to be asyncio subprocess.pipe and, and so on. You get the results out of it and everything. So you just do things like await, creating a subprocess with a shell or executing it and so on. 
then you can await communicating with it, which I think is pretty cool and so on. So not a whole lot more to say then other than if you're doing stuff with subprocess and you're moving already into other areas where async and await are very doable, think fast API, a SQL model, the SQL Alchemy 1.4 or later, where you're already doing a bunch of other async stuff, you know, go ahead and write this in the async way so it just sort of flows into the rest of what you're doing. That's pretty cool. This is this is this is from like 2017. Is that an older article, isn't it? Or yeah, it looks like it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, it's it's news to me. Maybe not news to the world. Like Emily said, she was already working with it and uh, previously. But yeah, I think it's great. Right. Well, it's the subprocess communicate is sort of uh, people often sh shifted over to just run. So I'm I'm hoping there's a there's a run version of that too. So yeah, probably yeah. is. Anyway, cool. Indeed. All right. Well gonna explain some stuff to us brian I, must. I i i see the uh, the author of what you're about to talk about out in the audience really as well so yeah, that's also, yes. also that's very cool yeah. uh well this, this is, is pretty definitely fun. an exciting one yeah yeah so this comes from this is type splainer and let me explain it to you um so <laughs> i don't know it's just this cool thing it popped up last week we we saw it uh, uh this is from arian sorry arian malik wasi um it's a it's a pretty cool name by the way but uh, so this is this little neat Heroku app that uh, has you. It's pretty simple. You well, I don't know how simple it is behind the scenes, but to, it's simple to use. To use, it's very simple. You pop in any sort of Python code that has type hints in it, and so this one has like, for instance, we've got an example up that the default with like a callable that takes a stir and an int and a generator. And um, yeah, so there's a bunch of type hints in here. This is even like kind of to more than most people use all the time. But and then you hit type plane, and um, it will show you what the different type hints mean and translate them into English for you. Um, and uh, it's just pretty pretty cool. I like it. Um, the, one of the things that uh, uh, Wasi said that he was also on, when he was developing this, he was on his way to developing a um, Visual Studio Code plugin, and so there is a if you search for Type Splainer uh, as a VS Code plugin, um, that that functionality is available to you right in your editor as well. So this is pretty neat. Yeah, this is really cool. This explanation you have there, like dictionary of list of set of frozen set of and like oh my gosh, uh, the description is something like a dictionary that maps a list of sets of frozen sets of integers onto a string. Like that's way more legible and internalizable then yeah how many brackets deep are we were four brackets deep in in that type information there yeah it is interesting on on twitter uh with the announcement of it or um uh we heard we heard about it through will mcgugan or at least i did um and uh some of the some of the comments were like that that not that this isn't cool it was like oh yeah this is cool but maybe python shouldn't be this complicated if you have to explain it but it's, uh, have these on, people done C++? Let me just ask them. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, you don't have to use types if you don't want to, but there's a lot of places where types are helping out a lot. And if you're running in, into somebody else's code that has some types on there that you're not quite sure what that's going on, throw it in TypeSplainer and it'll, you'll be able to figure it out. So. Absolutely. So. Yeah, and I did Emily, actually take a look. This? Oh, I think this is awesome. I think I, I absolutely agree. Like, you know, MyPy has allowed us to do gradual typing and all that, but 
a lot of times you do jump into somebody else's code base and you're like, whoa, these are more types than I've ever seen. And so being able to kind of convert it really easily is nice. Um, and I did actually take a look at how it works under the hood. Um, there's oh, cool. a really big if statement of like serialization, um, but then it also, I'm a nerd for anything AST related. Um, and so it uses like the parse under the hood, um, which is actually relatively complex for what it needs to handle based on, you know, different Python versions and whatnot. So. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Nice. Yeah, the very first time you were on Talk Python to me was to talk about the AST, the abstract syntax tree, right? Yeah, it was right around my first conference talk back in the day. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah, way back in the day. I think we met in Vancouver to set that up or something. When you were up, you know, we met at Pi Cascades there. Mm -hmm. I generally yeah. think of myself as a smart person, but but people that can handle doing AST work in Python, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's over my head. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. One thing really quick before we move on, Brian, if you go to the homepage of the Types Planner, go to yeah. basically the back one. So it's got this fairly pathological, insane example to show you, like you can take crazy stuff and explain it, yeah? Yeah. But you can type in there. Like you can take that code away and put whatever you want in there and then hit Types Plane. Um, so if you just made like a, a function that just took, you know, yeah, exactly. It'll give it a simple. name and do a dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Give the function a name. You'll be good. And then you hit types plane. Oh, oh, oh. Compiler, never. It needs a, needs a function name. Oh, I didn't. It's not JavaScript. Come on. Try and use Python. Yeah. See, I mean, it, it's not a super huge explanation of what an integer is, but I like you can take is. some random yeah. code and drop it and then go explain it to me. Yeah. I guess now you can also use the VS Code extension, which I haven't seen with. Anyway, I thought I thought this was cool as well and certainly saw a lot of people talking about it on Twitter when it came out. <laughs> so but final thing, I think this is noteworthy as well, and I think it's worth mentioning. Wasi is just 14. So speaking of, of people like Emily who can do like AST stuff like crazy, like also if you write this when you're 14, well done. You're on your way. Plus, it's, it's really good looking for something right out of the gate. So it's Looks nice. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I, I also think the uh, the like architecture of it's really great too. So I I really like that the embrace sort of building out the tool itself and then building a CLI and a web interface and a VX, VS Code extension. Um, so I think that is a really great example of how to structure a project like this too. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey Emily, we lost your uh, screen. If you want to share it back, oh, or I yeah. can just add in. And while you're working on that, let me just yep. follow up with Sam real quick, who pointed out, be super aware of the limitations of your hardware when you try to write files in async environments. I had this project that ground to a halt because too many workers were trying to run at once. Yes, absolutely. Good point, Sam. That is generally true for any limited resource that you point async things at, right? If you're going like async against a database and a couple of queries will max it out, and if you end up hitting it with 100 queries at the same time, it's not going to go faster it's only going to get worse as it like fights for contention and resources and stuff and then on this one um on the type explainer brian skin says agreed very nice work so yeah. awesome all right so all this right. is another Emily, you're up for the first one yeah so this is another one of those like new to me things um but marlene's article just came out and that's how i actually found out about it so marlene wrote this really excellent introduction to using ibis for python programmers um, IBITS itself has been around for like seven years or so. Um, it's a project, I think, that was started by Wes McKinney. Um, but they are a productivity-centered Python data analysis framework for SQL engines and Hadoop. 
Um, so you get a ton of different backends. It's going to compile to, you know, basically any flavor of SQL database um, and then a bunch of like more data science focused backends. Um, but this popped up on my Twitter feed from from Marlene, and it's just uh, a really great introduction. Um, also, just a really interesting sort of application. So she went through and wanted to pull some like art information about a city that she was going to visit because she likes to experience the culture of the new city. So um, it just walks through like how to get data into it and then how to interact with it with IBIS. Um, huh. So I'll actually switch over to the IBIS documentation. Um, oh, and this is now just different because it's small. Um, but yeah, I think I was really interested in it because we have um, like a pseudo legacy system that we're moving all the migrations out of Django and we're actually managing it with a tool called Hasura. Um, so we're so used to having, you know, Django, Django that's going to use SQL Alchemy and the ORM and everything just kind of is magic from there. And you give it a YAML file and you get seed data, right? Um, right. So we're trying to figure out how to manage seed data in like a wildly different environment where you have to load it in via like the Hasura CLI tool. Um, and you need SQL. And I don't want to write SQL, like anything I can possibly do to avoid that. <laughs> um, so this was a really neat way for um, getting around needing that modeling. Um, so let's see if I can get to Super this. cool. Yeah. It also looks like it integrates with Hadoop and other things that maybe are not direct SQL compatible. It might need a slightly different query language anyway, right? Yeah, and it's super interesting. So they have a few different ways that it works. So it directly will execute pandas, and then it compiles in a few different ways to either, you know, those SQL databases, Dask, Hadoop, um, BigQuery, like a bunch of different stuff. But yeah, it's not necessarily just going to be straight SQL, but it's going to handle that for you. Um, so you're really sort of, you know, future-proofing yourself away from that. Um, but yeah, they just got a ton of like really intelligent ways to filter data and interact with data in a really performant way. Um, I'm actually going to go back to Marlene's blog post real quick and do some quick scrolls. Um, it's also like one of the most Pythonic uh, like tools to integrate with SQL that I've seen. Um, so she gets to the point nice. where she has this database table. So you just tell it, you know, your table name and you set the variable and then you can interact with it as if it's just a dictionary. Um, so you've got your oh, art table cool. and you want to just pull these columns and you've got it and it's there. Um, so I thought it was like yeah, a really so, beautiful So you idea. would say something like uh, db.table of quote art and then you say art, you know, art equals, say art bracket quote artist and display and then boom, you get those back, right? Yep. That's awesome. As a dictionary, I guess, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, that's cool. Yep. Um, so yeah, there's a ton of different things that you can do with it. I highly recommend checking out um, their tutorials. They've got a ton of different options. Uh, my favorite one is the geospatial analysis. Um, so if you check out their example, they're going to show you how to pull information out of a geospatial database and then uh, a really quick way of actually like mapping out the data. Um, so if you check out these examples, I know it's not going to come through necessarily on audio. Um, but you can, you know, pull information out of these like land plots and then tell it to graph it. And it gives you, you know, a really nice looking graph with all the data there in like a whopping 10 lines of code. So, oh. yeah, generating that picture in 10 lines of code. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty neat. It makes me think I should be doing more with 
geospatial stuff. Like I don't do very much because I'm always afraid. Like ah, how am I going to graph it? What am I going to do? Like, but there's a lot of cool layers in that graph and everything. That's neat. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Cool. The API reminds me a little bit of PyMongo, actually, where you kind of just say you know dot and give it the name of, of things, and it's you know really kind of dynamic in that sense, and you get dictionaries back and stuff. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, but, it, but it's document, against different databases, right? Y- right, yeah. But I, I do like that perspective. Like, it really is kind of taking any database, um, but especially taking a relational database and giving it more of a document-oriented interface to it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, this is cool. I definitely want to check this out for, especially for for exploration. It feels like it's really got a lot of advantages for data scientists. Like they're going to fire up a notebook and they're like, I just need to start looking at this and playing with it. And they don't really want to write queries and then convert that, right? Yeah. Well, it also looks like, as far as I can tell, it looks like both in this article and in one of the tutorials on the the, uh, the main webpage is um, that the there's a, a good relation, one to, almost a one-to-one relationship between SQL, things you can do in SQL and things you can do here. Um, so... Uh, so that people familiar already familiar with SQL can uh, transfer over pretty easily. So that's pretty neat. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a nice find. All right, Brian, before we move on, can I take a second and tell you about our sponsor? Yes. I'm very excited about this. I think it, it's a, a big opportunity for people. So let me tell you about Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. This episode of Python Bytes is brought to you by Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Starting a business is hard. By some estimates, over 90% of startups will go out of business in just their first year. With that in mind, Microsoft for Startups set out to understand what startups need to be successful and to create a digital platform to help them overcome those challenges. Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub was born. Founders Hub provides all founders at any stage with free resources to solve their startup challenges. The platform provides technology benefits, access to expert guidance and skilled resources, mentorship and networking connections, and much more. Unlike others in the industry, Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub doesn't require startups to be investor-backed or third-party validated to participate. Founders Hub is truly open to all. So what do you get if you join them? You speed up your development with free access to GitHub and Microsoft Cloud Computing Resources and the ability to unlock more credits over time. To help your startup innovate, Founders Hub is partnering with innovative companies like OpenAI, a global leader in AI research and development, to provide exclusive benefits and discounts. Through Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, becoming a founder is no longer about who you know. You'll have access to their mentorship network, giving you a pool of hundreds of mentors across a range of disciplines and areas like idea validation, fundraising, management and coaching, sales and marketing, as well as specific technical stress points. You'll be able to book a one-on-one meeting with the mentors, many of whom are former founders themselves. Make your idea a reality today with the critical support you'll get from Founders Hub. To join the program, just visit pythonbytes.fm slash foundershub, all one word, no links in your show notes. Thank you to Microsoft for supporting the show. Yeah, so $150,000 credit people get. So if you're doing a startup, you know, that would have been awesome when I was trying to do a startup. Now, this next thing I want to tell you about, I think, I think this kind of lives in your wheelhouse as well. And keeping with the theme of the show, this one is recommended by Will McGugan. So thank you, Will, for all the good ideas. Um, I know you're out there scouring the internet for all sorts of cool things to use on textual and rich and whatnot. And this is the one of the ones they said they are going to start testing on, and that has to do with performance. So the topic is, or the library is airspeed velocity or ASV and the PIP nomenclature. 
And the idea is basically setting up profiling and performance as a thing that you can measure over the lifetime of your project rather than a thing that you measure when you feel like, ah, it's slow. I need to go figure out why it's slow for now. So as you automatically do, as you do check-ins, as you know, like CI runs and stuff like that. So probably the best way to see this is to just like pick on an example. So if you go to the link in the show notes, airspeed velocity, uh, there's a thing that says, see examples for AstroPy, NumPy, SciPy. I'll pick up AstroPy. And you get all these graphs. So each one of these graphs here is the performance of some aspect of AstroPy over time. How cool is this? Look at that. That's pretty neat. And if you hover over it, it shows you the code that runs that scenario. Wow. Yeah. And, awesome. you know, this is a sample. This is a sample. And then they did a huge improvement. You can see there are like two massive refactorings on the sky coordinate benchmarks, you know, scalar, whatever this is, right? This, this particular test they did there, it goes along pretty steady state. And then there's a big drop and a little spike up and then a, another big drop and then steady state for a long time. So wouldn't it be cool to have these different views into your system about like how it's performing over time? Yeah. So lower is better, right? Yeah. I believe lower is better. Yeah. I think lower is better. You can pull up regressions. You can say, okay, well, what got, what got worse? Like for example, uh, timetable got 35 times slower. So that might want some attention. <laughs> and it lists the GitHub commit, or really technically, I suppose it just lists the git commit, which is probably on GitHub, which is on GitHub, so that you can actually say, this is the code that changed that made it go 35 times slower. Wow. That's neat, I think. Um, I think one of the other challenges here is, what about, what if you wanted this information but you're only now learning about this project, right? You're only like now realizing, wouldn't it be great to have these graphs? How do you get those graphs back in history? So Will pointed out that you can actually um, connect it with your Git repository and it will check out older versions and run it. It'll like roll back in time and, and go across different versions and different versions of Python and generate those graphs for you, even if you just pick it up now. That's awesome. Any idea of if it's like restricted to packages or if you can? I think also you can apply, apply it to, to general, general projects. projects. Uh, I don't remember where I saw it. I had to pull it back oh. up here. Somehow I've escaped the main part. But yeah, I think uh, if you look at the using airspeed, you basically come up with a configuration spot file that says, um, you know, this particular project with these settings and then here's like the run command. You come up with one of these test suites. I don't think it has uh, any tie-in to packages per se because I think it goes against Git, not against PyPI. Yeah, yeah. So cool. pretty neat. People yeah, can cool. check that out. But like here you can specify like which versions of Python. What is this 2.7 stuff? I don't know. Um, but yeah, so you can run it against uh, all those old versions. You can configure how it runs and so on. Okay, so you can even, uh, you can set up like since you're defining what's being timed, you can uh, you can time large things like um, like a, a particular workflow through lots of bits of code first, uh, things like that. Yeah, exactly. So you basically come up with a couple of scenarios of what you would want to do that you're going to run against. Here you can see like you can benchmark against like tags and and things like that and get yeah cool. or branches. Yeah, uh, yeah. So Will says he ran it. Uh, ran it. Let's pop his up. Uh, ran it against uh, two years worth of rich releases. That's cool. Nice. And found a performance regression. Nice work. <laughs> I love it. Optimizations that made rich slower. Isn't that true? Like, oh, this is going to make it better. No. Mm -mm. Yeah. So, 
pretty cool. And uh, have to give a nice shout out to the full embracing of the Monty Python reference. Uh, if you go back to the Astro Pi version in the top left corner, it says airspeed velocity of an unladen. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did notice I that. That's that. awesome. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, very cool. cool. Well, yeah, thanks for sending that over, Will. Yeah, I got some projects I'd like to do that on. But speaking of uh, testing things, um, this one comes from Anthony Shaw. This is Perflint. So uh, this is a this is a pilot extension to check for performance anti patterns, and it's uh, um, Tony somewhere, Anthony, um, some guy named Anthony Shaw. Anthony Shaw. Yeah, uh, we mentioned yeah. him. Tony Baloney um, says, "Oh, here it is." Project is an early beta. It will likely raise many false positives. So I'm thinking that might be why he went um, went with a, an extension to PyLint instead of like an extension to PyFlex because or Flake Eight because um, PyLint gives lots of false positives. <laughs> no, uh, at least in my experience with PyLint, um, it it is uh, takes some configuration to get happy with it because it will show you things that maybe you're okay with like. I, I threw pilot against uh, some some uh, demo code that I have for like teaching people stuff, and uh, I'm using short variable names like you know x and y and things like that. And one of the one of the restrictions for pilot is you have to have all most most everything has to be three characters or longer. Um, and you know for production code that's probably fine, but uh, if you have different rules, you can change that. But back to this. I really like um, I like the idea of having something look over my shoulder and look at performance problems because I th- I'm an advocate for don't solve performance problems unless you find that there's a performance problem. So don't do premature optimization. However, um, having some some things are just kind of slow that you should get out of the habit of doing like uh, when using list in a for loop, if the thing that you're using a list of already is an iterable. Um, that's that's a big performance hit if it's a huge thing if it's because that turns an iterate iteratable or a generator into an entire list it creates the list you don't need to do that so that's a that's a big one anyway there's a whole bunch of uh, different things it checks for and I like the idea of just um, a, as you're writing code and as you're test uh, you know running this and uh, and trying to figure out if um, you know if there's problems with it you can kind of get out of the habit of doing some of these things. So yeah, these are nice. They'll catch uh, just some of the things you might think you need to do. You're not super um, experienced with or whatever, right? Yeah. And- like one of the things here is a uh, uh, error w two hundred one eight two hundred one, which is loop invariant statement. And this is one of that's kind of interesting. Is like there is an example of taking the length of something within a loop, and if that never changes within the loop, don't do the length in the loop. Take it out of the loop. Those are, yeah, there are, so, exactly. there's a few examples that you like, you might not notice right away, especially if you've taken something that was a linear, some linear code that you kind of added it inside of a loop and indented it over. And now it's in a loop. Uh, you might forget that some of the stuff inside might not, might maybe shouldn't be in the loop. So, yeah, this example here, you're doing it 10,000, you're doing a loop 10,000 times. And every time you're asking the length of this thing, that is defined outside the loop and is unchanging. So yeah. you're basically doing it 10,000 or 9,999 times more than necessary. Yeah. Yep. Cool. So kind of fun. I'm going to give it a shot see what I think in as using it. So yeah, definitely. Emily, do you 
use some of these linters or any things like this that give you warnings? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we mostly use Playgate, but I'm definitely curious to try this out too. Um, I can see how this would be tricky to get really consistent errors for these things. So uh, props to to Tony Baloney <laughs> for taking it on. Well done. Yeah, this is exciting. I'm glad to see this coming out. I know he was talking about it, but I didn't didn't see actually anything on GitHub yet or anything. So yeah, very well done. Yeah, it's cool. I, I like stuff like this that really like takes you to that next level of like, this is something that somebody would hopefully notice in like a code review. But if you can automate it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Better. I think a lot of these things that would would have to be a discussion during a code review if they could be automated and you could save the code review for meaningful stuff like yeah. security or, you know, like how are we going to version this over time? It's going to be tricky. Like, are you really storing pickles in the database? Let's not, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. All right. PEP594 has been accepted, which is super exciting. So PEP594, um, if you don't know what that is, it's a Python enhancement proposal. So a uh, proposed change to the Python language itself. Um, and so this one is removing dead batteries from the standard library. Um, it was written by Christian Himes and Brett Cannon. I think I saw a tweet from Brett saying that it, it had been accepted. Um, so this is just really exciting for anyone who's followed, on, followed along with any of this discussion. Um, it's been a long time coming. I think there was a major discussion about it at PyCon US 2019, it must have been. Um, and shortly after that, there was a PEP. Um, but it's been since then that it's kind of been off and on in discussion and finally uh, figuring out what is going to be the thing that really works for everyone and for the future of the language. Um, so this is going to be targeting oh, wow. version 311. Um, so just a quick recap of like the release plan for that. Uh, development on 3.11 will start this May, so May 2021. The final release, even for 3.11, is not until October 2022. And even then, this is just going to be deprecating modules. Um, so it'll be deprecations in 3.11 and 3.12. And it's not until 3.13 that it will actually be fully removed from the language itself. So... Um, you can kind of get a glimpse into how long of a process this is and how like big of a decision it was um, to get everyone yeah, on board. Yeah, it didn't look at all like anything rushed. When I went through and read this, it was like, here's the things that we think we can take out. Here's why. There's a table in there that shows um, third-party alternatives to certain things. Uh, mostly, yeah, that's the one. Uh, so there's certain things in yep. here just like, you know, that probably isn't needed or it's really superseded so there's pipes but then we also have sub process which will take care of that and that's a built-in one and then um async core just use async io but then there's other ones um there's a bunch in here i've never even heard of uh, yeah that's the thing right <laughs> there's one called crypt and it's like look just use passlib or argon or hashlib or anything that is better and modern yeah you know this was from 1994 cryptography crypt is not exactly the same as it was then. So, you know, maybe it makes sense to take it out, right? Yeah. I get. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really like, yeah. it's a thin line to walk, right? Like some people are using these and some of these modules maybe didn't have a lot of like maintenance over time, but that also meant that there wasn't somebody watching it for bugs or security vulnerabilities or anything like that. Um, so the balance of, 
is it worth pulling it out if somebody was relying on it versus the maintenance cost or the lack of maintenance that could yeah, really it's a, a liability, a, right? There's a, a CGI library. That's that's something else that takes you back from '95. <laughs> yeah, that's how I I started, but not with Python. I was doing CGI with Perl way back in '95. So yeah, that does go back. It also talks about whether that bit of code has a maintainer and whether that maintainer is active. For example, CGI has no maintainer. No. Like no one wants that. One of the things that's interesting here is you could take this code and you could still use it. You could vendor it into your your code, right? Just yeah. Now you're the maintainer. Of using, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's all yours. You can have that. But you could just go to CPython on GitHub, get that module, copy it over, and and now you kind of still have that functionality. Just you're taking it on. I expect maybe one or two of these might end up in their own GitHub repository as a package that is maintained. They did talk about that, right, Emily? About that being one of the possible paths they decided against? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like the the big uh, conversation back at the Language Summit in 2019 was, you know, could we get libraries on a, you know, more independent release schedule and pull them out of the standard library entirely and just have them be sort of their own standalone thing? Um, which, as I have briefly outlined the release schedule for 3.11, uh, you can see that it is on like a, a very long scale time frame. So I definitely agree. I think that some of these that people are still using, um, people are either going to go in there and grab the code and hopefully grab the license with it as well. Um, or they're just going to become, you know, modules that enough people care about that live on their own yeah. in PyPI. I don't see anything here that I would miss, but I... That doesn't mean that there's not people using them, you know? So on the good side, I mean, I, it do, totally makes sense to like remove things, especially stuff that's not getting maintained and there's no maintainer and and um, does that possibly has bugs in it now. Nobody knows. Um, uh, but like, what what are the, some of the good aspects, other good aspects? Does it, is it going to make the, the, the library or the Python standard or the install smaller? Or um, I mean, you'd think, anybody know the numbers on that? Okay. I don't know the numbers on that, but that it is. is I, I would say the biggest change is like maintenance. It's just no one has to worry about whether there's a bug in CGI that someone discovers because it's just not there. Yeah. 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 And with, especially with CPython, there's often a very big like barrier to entry. So, like, if a CGI bug was even filed by somebody, like, <laughs> where would you start to debug <laughs> it take and that reproduce off, right? it sort of thing? Yeah. Um, and, Right. And then the other thing, too, is maybe somebody else goes through the effort to fix it. Um, but it, it always takes the core dev to review that PR and get it merged in. Um, and so a lot of times, if you don't have an owner of a module, yeah. it's just not going to get a lot of attention. Um, so as a whole, it should be hopefully a, an impact on how we interpret core developer time. Because right now, I think we're at like over a thousand PRs open on GitHub. Um so a lot of times, you know, it's not just core developers writing code. And a lot of times you can have even more of an impact being that person that, yeah. you know, tries to review PRs and, yeah. and keep that number down. Brian out in the audience points out that the comment threads on discuss.python and elsewhere are really interesting. If you want to see examples of these old modules still in use. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a couple of them here. I think I think I linked them in the show notes, but if they're not there, I'll make sure it's in there. Nice. Um, yeah, you got a link to Brett's yeah. uh, or the Brett's discussion there. That's cool. No, I think this is good. I think this is good. And quick shout out to a new theme, right? Yeah. So the it's a brand new PEP site. So it's peps.python.org. And there's this really lovely theme on it. It's really clean and modern. Um, you've got a nice dark theme here. Yeah. 
as well. Cool. Yeah, I noticed a dark thing that was cool. And I think it even auto adapts to the time of day, which is great. Brian, is that it for all of our main items? I think it is. It is. Do you have anything extra for us? Would it surprise you if I said no? Yeah, it Nothing would. Nothing extra. I know. I always have like 10 extra things. No, I don't have anything extra this week. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Okay. How about you, Emily? Cool. Yeah, I've got a couple of extra things. Um, so as I was prepping for this, I looked at, I think it was the, just the most recent episode before this one. Um, there was a blog post that I think Brian shared yeah. on like a better Git flow that basically was saying like, commit all your stuff, reset everything, and then recommit everything once you're like ready to make a clean PR. Um, and so I wanted to share this as well. Um, this is one of my favorite tools that I learned about probably a few months ago. Again, it's <laughs> 2015, <laughs> not a new thing, but new to me. Um, so you can do auto squashing of Git commits when you're interactive rebasing. So essentially, if you've got a ton of different commits and you realize, oh, like I had a style commit, commit for styling all my new stuff a few commits back, but like I want to make this one more change. Instead of needing to, you know, rebase immediately or remember to, you know, stage it in a certain way in the future, you can actually go ahead and just commit one more time. And then you you flag that commit that you're making with the fix up flag. So it's just dash dash fix up. Um, and then you tell it the commit that you're wanting to sort of amend. Um, so you can just keep working like that, make your fix up commits. And then the only thing that you do right before you PR is you tell it to rebase with auto squashing. So once you do that interactive rebase with auto squash, it's going to find all those fix up commits. And, you know, when you interact a rebase, you often have to like, move commits around and tell it to squash into the previous commit. You've got to get it in the right order. Um, this handles all of it for you. And anything that's flagged with a fix up, it finds that commit ID and auto squashes it back in. So you get a really, really clean history um, without having to like redo all of your like commit right. work oh, that you had done a lot. Yeah, that's really nice. And this looks built into Git. Yeah. Hmm. I've never heard of auto squashing. I've definitely never used it, but it looks really useful. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. All right. What's your next one? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then a couple, couple other cool ones. Um, there was a tweet from Dustin Ingram about an award that the Python Software Foundation actually received. Um, it's from the Annie Awards, which is, uh, a, you know, animation version mm-hmm. of the Academy Award sort of thing. Um, and it was for Python's use in animation. And so I think this is just super cool. It's one of those like applications that you don't necessarily think about for Python all the time. Um, I don't think it gets talked about enough. Uh, I actually tried to find um, Paul Hildebrandt had a talk at PyCon Montreal, but I think it was back before we were recording these. Um, So if you ever see Paul at a conference, you've got to ask him about, you know, how Python is used in animation. And that's, oh yeah, that's really neat. So exciting. I would have never expected that, but that's great. And congrats, Guido, for getting the award. Um, and two more quick ones. The PSF Spring Fundraiser launched yesterday, and they're having a ton of fun with it. Launched on at least Pi Day in the United States. Um, so if you donate with some sort of um, contribution that is related to the number Pi, uh, you get like a free swag bag. Um, so just a, a fun oh, twist on yeah. On you this, can donate three dollars and fourteen cents, or thirty one dollars and forty one cents, or three hundred fourteen dollars and one hundred and sixteen cents, and yeah, like that's. <laughs> <laughs> 
it goes pretty far out if I remember Pi. There's a lot of numbers in there, so yeah, just keep going. Yeah, because whatever your bank account will allow. <laughs> exactly. All right. Any, anything <laughs> else you want to throw out? Um. Yeah, just one last quick one. Just a, a small plug for for us. Uh, Cuddlesoft is hiring. Um, we have a bunch of different positions open, but we're especially always looking for Python engineers. Um, we're a small team. We're a team of about eight people right now, uh, predominantly female engineering team. And just like the the pride of what I have done in the last few years of like building this team. So if you're looking for someplace that is always innovating, always focused on like really high quality tested code, um, but you want to work in a small team environment, um, get hands-on with clients, get hands-on with product. Cuddlesoft yeah, yeah. um, looks really cool. You seem to be doing a lot of bunch of different small fun projects instead of just getting stuck in like one huge legacy code. So if you're you're looking to kind of bounce around from project to project and learn a lot, I think that'd be a good place, right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I have two jokes for us, even though I have no extras, so I'm making up for it there, I guess. Nice. So Aaron Patterson said, I heard Microsoft is trying to change the file separator in Windows, but it received tons of backslash from the community. <laughs> bum, bum, that's pretty funny, right? But the forward slash well, works fine in Windows. People just forget it actually, to use it. It actually does. It totally does. And following along there. Oh, Emily, I think this is the perfect follow-on for you as well. Do you ever look at people's GitHub profiles if they apply? Like if they say, yeah, right, of course. I mean, it would be crazy oh, yeah. not to, right? So this person <laughs> here, you know, if you go to your GitHub profile, it will show you your public activity over time, and it'll say like on this day, you know, in September on Monday, you had this much work, and then on Tuesday that much, and it, it'll color like different colors of green. Yeah. So if you all check out the link here, we have a GitHub activity for a year that spells out "Please hire me" in like the exact amount of commits on just the right day, and I think that's. I think there's some history manipulation going on here, but <laughs> probably some auto squashing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, I would I would look at that and think that they had yeah. some decent yeah, enough exactly. skills like, to, it does to manage that. Mean so. that you're probably not That'd doing like plus. normal Git work on one hand, but on the other, like I'd have to think for a while to figure out how to get it to draw that out. So that's pretty cool too. <laughs> it's one of the main reasons why I switched uh, my blog to Hugo so that uh, blog posts count as Git commits. <laughs> exactly, double dip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. All right. So well, that's it. that's what I brought for the jokes. Nice. Well, uh, thanks everybody for showing up. Thanks Emily for showing up here and also for the uh, walrus operator. Love it. Yeah. And uh, we'll see everybody next week.